You are listening to the weekend message of Crossroads Church North Campus. Crossroads exists to make much of Jesus, and we do this by following in the way of Jesus and making disciples who love God and love others. To find out more about Crossroads, go to crossroadslive.com. Thanks for listening. Grace and peace. Good morning, church. Um, So it's Luke 5. Um, Where are we? 27 through 31. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me and leave everything. He rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. There was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at the disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You may be seated. Morning. I'm Ryan. Wow, that was nice. I'm going to start off with a story before we dive into the scripture. I, I did some, I almost said it again, I did some time in YWAM. That sounds like I went to jail. I served some time. No, that's not working either. Uh, I was in YWAM for a while, and uh, when I was younger, especially, and one of the things I did was something called a DTS, and it was like a nine-month course, and I did did a two-month outreach to New Zealand, and right when we arrived, we stayed at one of the bases on that island in Auckland, Um, but for the rest of our time there, we went from city to city, and we stayed mostly in people's homes. And the first um, place we went from after the base, we drove to this city, and, um, and different folks showed up to this church that was hosting us, and um, you know, this, this guy came in his van, and interesting fella, awesome guy, loves Jesus. He was about this tall, okay? And half of his body hadn't grown in the same rate as his other half, so he had this kind of gait when he walked like this. He would sway his whole body. Um, and so it was interesting to sort of like, hey, man, and get to know him a little bit and the things he went through and the way he served God. And um, he, t- he took me and another guy back to his house in his van, and we were settling in. He was showing us our room. He was a single guy. And um, as I was settling in, um, um, a Maori guy, a Maori's a, a native New Zealander, right? A Maori guy, about as tall as I am, a little thicker, came out of the other bedroom in the back um, and said Hello. Um, which was a little disconcerting for me, only because um, he was had full makeup, and he was wearing a skirt and pumps, had his nails done. Uh, he was a trans Maori guy. And I hadn't experienced uh, a lot of that up to that point. Okay, this is over 25 years ago. Um, and... I had to adjust quickly, right? I was staying in this house for a, a number of days, and I, I met him. He called himself Tina. He had another name from his parents, but I, I don't remember what it was. Um, <clears throat> but all of a sudden, this guy was staying with this other guy because he didn't have a place to live. Um, so he, he offered him a spot as an act of generosity. Um, but I found myself needing to adjust to an uncomfortable uh, situation. And what I found was, over the course of the next few days, um, we got to know each other. 
Uh, we emptied the dishwasher together. We had dinner together. We went out to get ice cream. And, um, and I just started asking questions and working through things. And I can tell you that I didn't do, I didn't do awesome inside my own heart. I had a lot of spiritual arrogance. I had a lot of judgment. I had a lot of things that were going through. But, um, but by God's grace, I was able to have at least some conversations and talk through some things. And in the end of that time together, we parted friends. Uh, I was able to share the gospel and um, really talk through what I believed and why. And uh, Tina didn't accept that at the, at the moment. But we, we parted, as I said, in good, in good terms. And, and I, I set that up. In the context, I, I tell you that story in the context of the scripture because um, there's this theme happening in chapter five here where it's, it's a sequence of stories they're trying to communicate a big idea, which is that Jesus has the power to forgive sin, loads of sin, and no one is beyond his reach because we find ourselves here looking at the calling of Levi, who is also Matthew, who wrote the book of Matthew. Um, the, the names are both used. Um, and taking a look at that in more depth, you'll see maybe why I told a story about Tina. So let's pray as we dive in. Father, I thank you for the way your word um, changes us, the way it speaks to us, the way we see you clearly, we see ourselves more clearly. I pray that as we come with... Um, all of the, the things that we come to church with this morning, our personality, our perspectives, our convictions, the circumstances we've been through, um, we bring all those to you and ask that you would um, lead us into the ways that you call us to live. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Verse 27 says, and after this he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. Uh, I'm going to park for a little while on this first verse, but um, a tax collector was someone with authority from the Roman government to collect and exact tax payments from the community. It wasn't taxes that went to roads or schools or, or snow plows or whatever else might be on your mind uh, in terms of services. It wasn't like county taxes. After the collector um, met their quota, if any other taxes they gathered after that was just their money. Okay, so they just did whatever they could to tax whatever they thought of in that particular month or week and bring that money in as much as they could. And the rest went back up the chain to Rome, to advancing and building that kingdom and that empire. Um, and whatever got skimmed off the top all the way along the chain back to Rome. None of that money went into uh, the Jewish people. And it wasn't according to established code, as I said. It was very subjective. So I want you to think about tax collector like... A, cons a casino owner slash mob boss, okay? I, I thought of the, the sheriff of Nottingham, okay? That's what came to mind when I was thinking about tax collectors. This is exactly the character and the approach that tax collectors in this time took. So forgive my childish illustration. Um, so in this situation, under Roman rule, they recruited Jewish people to do this. Um, because the Jewish people knew the community, they knew what was happening, they knew the industries, they knew who was rich, they knew who was poor, and they were really good at milking that community for everything that it was worth. As a result of this, um, rabbis actually instructed their communities to excommunicate these people from the synagogues. You are no longer a Jewish person. You are no longer allowed to come into synagogues. Um, these, these, all the Jews disdained them 
betrayers of their own people. They were on the same level as murderers and thieves. That's how they viewed them. But Jesus saw him. Very interesting. He's walking down the street, and it just says that Jesus saw him. He saw everything that Levi was. He saw everything that couldn't be seen. The whole of it was probably, you know, the, the whole of Levi's sin and his decisions and his whole life path and the things he did. Jesus saw the whole of it. And I can tell you it was worse than what other people saw because that's true of all of us. But Jesus looked at him and he saw him. This man who is essentially is a Hebrew, but he's acting as a corrupt IRS agent. Welcome to tax season. Imagine a corrupt IRS agent getting all up in your business, but not for the United States government, for some foreign power. And that person was messing around with your community and taking your money. Think about how you'd feel about these people. He's serving as an intermediary between the people and an imperialist, imperialist Roman government. Okay, That's the picture of tax collector. And all this by a man named Levi. Oh, the irony of that. What do I mean by that? Where does the name Levi come from? Well, it was one of the sons of Jacob. One of the 12 sons of Jacob was Levi. And those, became, those brothers became the leaders of all the tribes of Israel. And Levi, the descendants of Levi, the Levites, were set apart by God, a special people. And among those people, he selected priests from them. So initially, it was Aaron and his sons, Moses and Aaron. Aaron and his sons became the priests. And this is just an illustration to help you realize that this is such an, an amazing and important role that God um, put in place. These are, these are men appointed to serve in the temple and to be in his presence in a unique way. They didn't get an inheritance like the other tribes, you know. They didn't get all this land. They got, a, they got cities to live in basically. Cities of refuge, actually a place where if you committed manslaughter, you could run into these cities of refuge where the Levites lived and escape the vengeance that was coming for you. Um, an incredible role and, and place in God's um, heart. He, he, these, these people don't get an inheritance because their inheritance is the Lord. Not all Levites were priests, but all priests were Levites. And how were they supported? How did the priests in the temple make their living? How did they get by? Offerings, tithes, and get this, a temple tax. So naturally, the Levites were, were designed by, to, to be supported and, and, and fed by the people, by donations and things from the other tribes. But this wasn't exactly happening in Levi's life. It was a weird um, shadow or inverse of the calling that a Levite had. See, Levi, these priests were acting, supposed to act as an intermediary between God and man, but Levi was acting as an intermediary between the wrong two parties. You see, when Jesus saw Levi, he saw that shadow, that inversion, that um, change, and he saw all the sin in his life, but what he also saw was his calling and his purpose and the future that he had, and that's something that other people didn't see either. Here's the question that lies within this little phrase for me. Who has God made you to be? The unique set of skills and gifts and experiences and, and sort of propensities, potential in a certain direction that he made you to be, 
that maybe has been skewed or you're living sort of a knockoff or a derivative of that calling because of the sin in your life or the things you've pursued, the gods of this world. You're still you. He's made you a certain way, but maybe you're living maybe a shadow of the potential and the things that God had for you when you dreamed, when he dreamed of making you. What are you devoting time pursuing and building that God maybe hasn't asked you to pursue or to build? Are you willing to listen to if you, if you hear Jesus come into your world and maybe ask you to go in a different direction? And I'll just leave you with that question as we move on here. But verse 27 continues and it says, And he said to him, Follow me. Follow me. Famous words. If you've been to church more than once, you've heard these words. Follow me. This is the way that Jesus comes to his um, you know, people and calls them to be disciples, to be apostles. And based on my calculations, there's already six people following Jesus as disciples. And those are Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, and Nathaniel. And so far, these guys that he has gone up to and called are pretty much upstanding Jewish citizens. These are some pretty quality men. They work hard. Some of them were actually disciples of John the Baptist. They were following John the Baptist and studying and going deep when Jesus showed up. And they're like, see ya, we're going with him. I don't know if you remember that story. That's just some of the people. So they're coming down the street, um, Jesus and the six of these people that he's called specifically, and probably some others following just because he's doing miracles and a lot of amazing teaching. Um, but if, if I am been invited into that, into that team, and I have a certain picture about what we're doing here and who's involved and where we're going. And so when we're going down the street and Jesus stops here, this tax booth, these guys are thinking, what are we doing? Why are we pausing here? And as he notices Jesus' attention drawn to one particular, they're probably thinking, these vile betrayers of the people congregate here in this booth and they wallow in their stolen wealth and their sin. And right now Jesus is stopping here and, I, and he's good at this. He's about to let them have it. And they're probably getting their popcorn out, right? Jesus should let loose some of those heavy, piercing words he's so good at, put them in their place. And I can imagine that some of them were probably recognizing the guy because he's a local tax collector. And if you get a big load of fish, guaranteed somebody's going to tell him about it. He's going to come tax your fish. So it's pretty likely that this person has actually come into the businesses and families and incomes of the men that are following Jesus and taken from them. And they know him and have experiences along those lines. But he op Jesus opens his mouth and these men hear not a rebuke but an invitation the same invitation that they heard. How disorienting would that be for him? And I can just imagine these guys standing in the street sideways, glances like, what the heck? What is happening? Very strange for Jesus to go to this kind of person and say, follow me. This moment's really important for a couple of reasons. One of them is important for you and I. It's really good news for us folks. It means that Jesus doesn't see us like other people do. He doesn't see us through our failures and our shortcomings and the things that have not turned out and panned out and the ways that our life is maybe not as good as it could have been. He doesn't, people, people don't, Jesus doesn't see us like that. 
He sees all of our sin, but he also sees the calling and the purpose and the identity that he's given each one of us. Spurgeon has a quote. He says, O man or woman, whatever your name, sit and wonder and adore the condescending love that chose even you to be Christ's follower. It's such good news for you and I because we all have our stuff and Jesus saw it and transformed it and forgave it and spoke life and future to us when we didn't deserve it. It means it doesn't matter what your background is or what university you studied at if you have a ton of money or no money. It means that us slimy, dishonorable, unfaithful, sinful people are not lost. Can I get an amen? Whew. And some of you are like, well, I'm not slimy or dishonorable or sinful. Well, just stay tuned. Jesus has some things to say to you as well. So uh, the second reason, the second reason this is a really important moment is for the people we've written off. Groups of people that over time we have come to dehumanize, to villainize and call evil because they're being used by demonic powers. They're participating in the powers of this world to, to do things that we think are evil. And what better example than Matthew? Not only has he betrayed God's people, but he's actively stealing from them and serving the God of money for his own benefit. And he's serving the imperialist government that will literally facilitate the execution of the Messiah. Evil. Was Jesus for extortionist tax collectors? No. Was he for Levi? Yes. Do you see my point? He was for Levi, the human being who had decided to take that role, who was participating in this evil, but who was also an image bearer of Christ who God knew and loved and had a purpose and a calling for. Was Jesus afraid of speaking the truth? You can say something now. Okay, thank you. Was he afraid of facing an angry mob? Was he ever intimidated or afraid of people in power? No. But his goal here, and in many other cases, was to call people out of darkness and give them the light of hope. So walking down the street and to this place where the tax collectors were, he was seeing things different. He had a different purpose and a different calling. Ephesians 6 verse 12 says, For we did not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Are there things happening in our world, in our country that need to be opposed? Yes. Are they evil? Yes. There is a dynamic, a spiritual dynamic of things that we need to fight for as God's people. But have you dehumanized the human beings involved in those things? Have you made them faceless? Have you categorized them and labeled them and written them off? Who among their ranks does Jesus even now want to extend the self-same invitation to that you and I have received? Someone unreachable. 
that is going to respond just like Levi did in this moment. Verse 28, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Oh man, the things that would have crossed this guy's mind in this moment maybe. Someone so embedded and invested in the system. The many years positioning himself to get into this position, this lucrative, powerful position. The irons he's got in the fire, because when you get into that place, all of a sudden there's, you start scheming and partnering with other people. I'm sure he had a lot of stuff going on. Powerful enemies he's going to make as he abandons his post and turns his back on the Roman government. Not to mention the lifestyle he's used to. The pleasures he enjoys, the, the luxuries he's going to have to forego as a result And it says, he rose. He rose. Why would he do that? Because something happens when Jesus draws near. I know some of you have experienced this. Something, a bunch of crazy stuff starts to happen when Jesus starts to draw near to you. What I mean is, things that are just givens in your life Maybe it's your job or your role or just your trajectory or your lot in life or where you live or your family. All these things are just kind of givens that you've settled with suddenly begin to shift and become unsettled. And another effect that happens when Jesus comes closer is that things that seemed um, far off, things that seemed ethereal or ambitious or aspirational, like... Um, just a new, a new direction in life, a new future, maybe just the existence of God or his personal knowledge of us and his love for us and his calling in our life and this sense of deeper purpose, all these things that seem kind of like whatever, they suddenly begin to solidify and form under our feet. And that's what's happening in Levi's life as Jesus draws near to him. The things that have been givens like his life as a tax collector and the direction he's going and all that suddenly begin to shift and change and maybe in the days before Jesus came it was already beginning to move and then all of a sudden these things that he didn't even weren't sure were even true are suddenly solidifying under his feet and then he hears these words those words that we've heard maybe that we've read those piercing, frightening, exhilarating, shame-inducing, courage-giving words, follow me. That's what he hears in the middle of all this change and shift in, in the spiritual realm in his own soul and his heart. And Jesus shows up and says, follow me. If in the last few weeks or months, you're experiencing in your own life dynamics like that, things that have just kind of been settled for a long time are suddenly starting to churn a little bit and you're starting to feel something different. And things that have maybe felt far off, a dream you used to have or uh, something that God spoke to when you were young or something, all that stuff is starting to come back and flow into your heart and your mind. You're coming into a moment. Jesus is going to show up. And he's going to say those words to you soon. If you haven't heard them already, follow me. What will you do? If you're in that spot, if you hear those words, what will you do? Levi followed him. And things were different from there on out. And it was time to celebrate. So he decided to celebrate Jesus in the only way he knew how at that point, which was to throw a massive party at his house. A rager. I don't know if it's a rager, but you know, I'm I'm trying to paint the picture here. 
Levi was wealthy. He had a huge house. And it says, and Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him, with them. When it says large company, that means a whole bunch of people, okay? Lots of them. Things were shifting, and Matthew wanted, and Levi and Matthew wanted everyone to meet Jesus. Side note, if, if Jesus does something in your life, if you've recently come to the Lord and begun to follow him, throw a party for everybody that you know. And, and make sure there's food there. Because the, if you do that, if you take this moment where God has done something in your life, and you're like, this is awesome, it's amazing, throw a party and tell everyone you know about it. It doesn't matter if they're church people or not, or work people, or whatever. Just throw a party, invite them over, because you might have the chance to talk about Jesus. Or you might even have the chance to introduce him to Jesus while he's there. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to get all these people that he knows and cares about, the people from his world, some time with Jesus and, and his followers. And can you imagine this scene, you know? Again, imagine all the kinds of people the tax collectors are described as. Imagine all of them coming for a huge party at Levi's house who's known for certain things, Right? And they all show up and begin to do their normal things. And suddenly in this mix is Jesus, a famous rabbi and six of his followers, right? Can you imagine these guys coming, hey man, doing the going around, good to see you, good to see you, where's the drinks at, let's go. And then they get to the same, like, oh, hey, uh, hey. You know, just this sudden collision of two very, very different worlds. Verse 30, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled as his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Wow, so apparently it's not only Jesus and his, his disciples, his actual followers, but there's all, a bunch of other people that have been kind of following Jesus around and watching the miracles, like I said, who are also like, okay, cool, party, we'll go. Like, something incredible is happening. This tax collector just came to Jesus, he's now following, they all show up too. But they have some things to say. And a couple things to note in this whole scene. Number one, Jesus went to the party. He didn't, I just was struck by that. Jesus went to the party. He wasn't like, didn't take Levi aside and like say, hey, listen, man, I appreciate your heart. I get what you're trying to do. Uh, it's not my, we need to cancel this party. It's not my thing. We have a different, he didn't say any of that. He let Levi throw this big bash and invite all the people, and Jesus went to the party. It was an opportunity for them to see that if he would even take Matthew in, even take Levi in and, and care for him, that they might even have a chance to maybe be loved and received by Jesus as well. To find hope, to hear his words, to sense his love, to get a glimpse of light in the middle of the dark. Again, people from Levi's life, and Jesus cares about them as much as anyone. He wants to meet them, include them, relate to them, invite them. I want to say clearly, though, just to side note, his motive in attending the party wasn't to participate uh, in the moment just like everyone else, as in eat and drink in excess. That was not his motive for going to the party. And if this has been a thing in your life, maybe it's time to not go to parties for a while, if you know what I mean. 
But in this context, he was going there to say, I'm bringing light into darkness. I am not going to this party just to party. I'm going to set the tone. I'm going to influence and and invite people into something totally different. That's why he's in attendance. Another thing to note is that Jesus and his followers were fully engaged. They weren't standing far off to make sure these people knew how much better we were than them. Make sure they knew how nasty and sinful they were. They weren't like, hey, could you set up a separate table because we don't want to be seen with these people. We don't want the, you know, people to think that we're whatever. They weren't like the Pharisees huddling around the edges like, oh my gosh, what are we even doing here? We shouldn't be here. And as soon as they see the disciples, obviously sitting down at the table and eating and having a glass of wine with everyone else and enjoying themselves, talking, building friendships, you know, learning about their lives, as soon as they see that dynamic start to happen, what do they do? What are you guys doing? Knock the, what are you doing? Knock that off. Let's go. And they start grumbling to the disciples. Why? Because like most cultures, joining in a meal was a, a sign or a, a signal of acceptance. Which in this case, the Pharisees viewed as a moral compromise and sort of an abandonment of holiness. But we know it wasn't that because Jesus is sinless. He never sinned. So he went to a tax collector party. He sat down and ate with them and had a glass of wine and talked with them, and he was not sinning. He was loving. He was reaching out. He was bringing people to himself. He was not accepting their sin and their way of life, but he was telling them that they were valuable to God because they're made in his image and loved by him. It's pretty far outside the comfort zone for the people involved, but Jesus is setting the tone. And he's even saying, in this case, to his own disciples, follow me. We're going to a party. (laughs) I can tell you these guys are like, okay. And like sitting down and just queuing off Jesus the whole time. Jesus is like, yes, be here. Know these people. God loves them. Follow me into these places. I know you've hated these people since you were a kid. I know your parents hated them. I know they've been extorting money from your businesses and your families for years. I know they've turned their back on your people as a whole, betraying you. I know they've been excommunicated from the synagogues. I know the, the other rabbis that are around are telling you never to associate with them. And I am leading you here into this place. I'm sitting down and extending love, and bringing light. So follow me. I love them. One of them is now one of us, and there are more coming. The heart of this moment is expressed in Paul's writing years later when he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. It says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. When God put me in that house in New Zealand, and Tina came around the corner, he was saying, follow me. Follow me. This is not someone I'd ever, I'd never encountered someone like this. 
um, this closely. I would have never chosen to be in that situation. I had categorically dismissed and judged that whole group of people. I had no idea how to connect with them, communicate with them, any of that. And yet Jesus decided to take me there and say, see this person. Get to know them. I couldn't get out of it, even if I wanted. It was a wonderful lesson I'm so thankful for. Many have come since then. The Pharisees can't get there, though. They can't cross that bridge. They can't, they can't get there. Oh, they're grumbling. What are you doing? What are we doing? We got, what are you thinking? You can't, can't you see the people, all the titles and the labels? They only just see this category, and they want out. But it wasn't the disciples who answered them. Verse 31, and Jesus answered them. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. This is such an amazing couple of sentences. Uh, as I studied, I, I read these over again. I felt like maybe I should just end here because that is the perfect way to end this whole thought. It captures so much. Um, but I do have a couple more things. So, um, It's easy to take our health for granted. When you're feeling healthy, when everything's working as normal, when you're feeling good, it, how, how quickly do you forget about the fact that you're healthy? Pretty quick. We just go, all of a sudden, you're just going about your business and doing your thing, and you, and you take it for granted that you, can, that you can walk easily, or you can breathe easily, or you can see clearly, or all the things that, all, that you're just healthy, and so you take it for granted. Man, the second you get hurt, or an illness hits you, or a diagnosis comes across... Things change quickly, all right? When things are good, you rarely think of your doctor or the pharmacy or the hospital or the surgeons on shift there at a certain time or the ER or any of that stuff. But man, when something hits you and you start to hurt, you immediately think about it. And it's hard, actually, to think about anything else. And pretty soon, all your thinking is oriented around that next appointment or that prescription or getting that surgery, Jesus is saying, if you perceive yourself to be healthy, if you don't even conscious of me, I, we don't, you have no part in me as a savior, as the Messiah. I am here for the people that are painfully aware of their need. He certainly isn't telling the Pharisees, you guys are righteous, they need a lot of help, so that's why I'm here. He's not, he's not saying that. He has many words for the Pharisees and Sadducees over time, right? He's saying, people... What he's saying is you're perceiving them wrong and you're perceiving yourself wrong. He's highlighting the fact that this group of people he's with is much more aware of their brokenness and their sin and their need than the Pharisees are. When we get to the place where we basically, we view ourselves as basically capable, right? Like we, we mostly kind of get through our lives and we're mostly fine and occasionally some serious stuff happens and we really pray a lot, um, but most of the time we're good. And there's some other people who just really are messed up. When that thing kick starts cooking in your heart, warning, 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 warning. We are all lost. We are all deeply in need. And if you're in a phase in your life where you feel like you're not, it's a, it's a deception. 
Jesus is calling us to a life uh, where we, we live and depend on him as the surgeon of our souls. Psalm 14 is something we have to come to terms with. Verse 2 and 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Harsh a little bit. I, I know that. But man, the Pharisees need to hear it. And sometimes our Pharisaical hearts need to hear the same thing. You don't have what it takes. You are not righteous. Encountering Jesus is both the lowest moment that you'll feel in your, in your life and the highest moment you'll ever feel in your life at the same time. You see all of your sin. You see your, in your failures, your betrayals, all the stuff that didn't go right, your, your distance from God. That's what happens when you see Jesus. Beginning of chapter 5 in the fishing boat, he falls down and says, I'm not worthy. I, you got the wrong guy. That's the feelings that come. And he takes this low, 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 low. And he says, but I have called you. I have made you. I have the future. I have the ability. I have the power to take you into a life of hope. And all of a sudden we see something we never saw before. And courage, and courage fills our hearts. And hope returns. That's what happens when Jesus comes. As I said, Jesus is the Messiah and the surgeon of the soul, and everyone is a patient who needs to get into him. And you need to have a follow-up appointment and a post-op, <laughs> okay? You need to have checkups, and you need to take his advice, and you need to have a daily regimen of exercise and diet to keep things on track, and maybe some therapy and physical therapy and everything else, and it's in him. He is that physician, He calls sinners to repentance on the first day and every day after that. I'm going to wrap up here with a couple questions. And the first one is something I'm going to invite you to respond to if you want. By rising, like Levi did that day. If you're in a point in your life, it's kind of got two parts. So if you're at a point in your life where maybe you really haven't ever responded to Jesus' words, but that thing is happening where things are starting to move and change in your life and things are, that you haven't thought about are starting to come in and you've been hearing this and you hear me preach today and you hear those words, follow me, and they're sinking right into your heart and you're like, it's my moment. You're having your Levi moment. In a minute when I say, I would encourage you to rise and respond to Jesus and say, yes, I am ready to let go and to stand up and to move with him, to follow him. And the second part of that, before we just invite you to stand in that expression, um, maybe he's talking to you about some aspect of your life that is a shadow of what it could be, something you're, you're doing and pursuing that's actually not what he's asking you to do. And you know there's this thing that's been stirring in your heart or this dream or this vision and you want to move toward that and away from the things that have been bogging you down and make you preoccupied and stressed out and just the things that have happened. You want to let go of that and say, I'm going to rise up. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to respond to his call in my life at this moment 
to follow him in these things. So if that's hitting you, you don't have to stand up. I don't want you to feel the pressure at all. But if, that, if that's something that you're, yeah, that's just hitting you, just, just rise like Levi did that day. And I want to pray for you. Right on. Right on. I'm going to give it a minute. Lord, thank you for these that have stood and responded to the thing that you're saying to them. Hearing your call in their hearts and their ears to follow you and, do, and, and making a decision. I thank you for the grace in this moment just to hear you. So many times it feels confusing and yet here you're speaking and you're present and we're aware of it and I just want to praise you for that. And God, I also acknowledge that um, we all are very aware of ourselves and our inabilities, our failures, our sins, the things that we're not good at, the many repeated decisions we've made. So we come with all of our weakness and all of our sin and we bring it to you, God, and we ask for forgiveness. We repent, Lord, of the things that we've picked up that we weren't supposed to, of the, of the path that we're on that is not from you. And Lord, I pray that as you forgive, even now, this transaction happening, as they pray and and ask your forgiveness, that you lift that off, that there be a lightness and a joy and a purity and a redemption as you begin to speak to them of the potential that's there, that's in you. I pray that hope would return. I pray that there be a sense of joy and expectation as you begin to lead them in a different direction. And I pray that there would be a celebration in their own hearts, maybe in their own families, about the things that are about to change the new life that's coming from today. Thank you for that, God. Thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last question before we wrap up, if we could have the worship team kind of come up. But this one's a rhetorical question. I just want to leave with you to consider and pray through. And it has to do with, you know, Maybe a, a Tina that God is going to bring into your own life. Your own version of that, whatever that might be. And maybe you found yourself slipping into that tendency to dismiss and dehumanize those who are doing evil. And the question I, I just leave with you as we, I'll pray one more time here too, but are you willing to follow Jesus into a meal with them? Are you willing to follow him into that place and those people and bring light if he gives you that opportunity? It's difficult, it's uncomfortable, I get it. But he just may lead you into those places. With these words, follow me. Jesus, we want to follow you wherever you want to take us. Thank you for teaching us this morning, God, out of this scripture. Thank you for showing yourself. Thank you for saving us. So glad that I have a chance. <laughs> and I know we all do. Thank you for your love and your, 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 you looked at all of us and said, follow me and gave us a new future, a new path. And we just want to say thank you and rejoice in that and help us to be used to show others that same future, that same hope in Jesus. Amen.
John chapter 10, verse 14 says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. I know there's a lot of stuff going on in the world, in your own lives. Just know that as you respond to him, and his words to follow me, you're following a good shepherd. And his rod and his staff, they comfort you, and he is leading you to green pastures. So trust him and go in grace and peace today. Have an awesome Sunday. See you.